Patrick's Day. It's good to see you all, lest any of you try to capitalize on the opportunity to pinch me and inflict pain. I made sure I wore a green shirt, because I know some of you would do that with all too much delight. The title of the sermon today is Little Scroll, Big Plan. Little Scroll, Big Plan. If you're just joining us, we have been in the Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation, and we have been walking systematically through, we're about 20 sermons into it, and so if this is your first Sunday or the first Sunday in a long time, uh, it's understandably you might feel a little lost, uh, but I will do my best to catch you up to speed. Here in chapter 10, more immediately in the context, we have seen in chapter 9 and chapter 8, we've seen six trumpets. Uh, being blown with various events happening at the sounding of each trumpet. We saw that each of these, just like the seven seals, are a little bit different perspective of what's happening. And just like with the seven seals, we saw six seals broken systematically, one after the other. And before the seventh seal was broken, in between the sixth and the seventh seal, we had an excursus in chapter 7 where, where they were answering the question, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb at the breaking of the sixth seal? And chapter 7 answered that uh, in its excursus, who can stand all of the people of God, those who are sealed, 144,000. We saw that was like a military census. And the second half of chapter 7 shows the innumerable multitude to show not one is lost. So that was that excursus. Now we have this, this excursus between the sixth and seventh trumpet, uh, fashioned after the sounding of the trumpets at the invasion of Jericho. We have the excursus before us in Revelation 10. And this is also going to deal with the nature of the church, what is going on with the church. As we saw, the six trumpets are focused primarily on unbelievers or those who are not trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who are not obeying Him. Those trumpets were focused wholly on them. And so chapters 10 through eleven, fourteen, this excursus, are going to deal with the church, the protecting, sealing, and victory of the church. Now, some see these things as a successive series of events happening one after the other after the secret rapture of the church in Revelation chapter 3. Some see this as a future time where all these things are happening literally. Literally, there are demon locusts. Literally, there are uh, various forms of suffering and torment for unbelievers and a three-and-a-half-year period of suffering after the church. That would be you and I have been raptured out of the church. I have suggested that understanding is incorrect. I have suggested there are better ways to account for that and that the whole book of Revelation applies to more than a very small group of saints thousands of years later after it was written for three and a half years. I don't know that that does justice to what God is trying to communicate, the hope he is trying to communicate, the certainty of our victory that the Spirit longs for us to walk in confidently and joyfully. And so this morning, I hope as we walk through this excursus, that your soul is likewise encouraged as you see what good things the Lord has in store for his church. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we do praise you. We want to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We want to come into your presence with singing. We want to serve you with gladness. And we desperately want to know that we are yours. And we know that because you sent your son to die for sinners that we might become the sheep of your pasture. And so I pray now, if there are any here who are not coming into your presence with singing. Maybe they don't serve you with gladness. Maybe they don't know you. Maybe they aren't your sheep. I pray that this morning you would call them to yourself. That this morning they would know there is time that repentance will bring them life and joy. And so would you grant this as the gospel's proclaimed? Would you be with Waiehu Community Church and Pastor Rocky, as he preaches your word from the Gospel of John, and may you do an incredible work there to save many from Waihu and Waihe. And Father, we do praise you that you have answered prayer, and so we want to thank you for answering prayer and bringing little Paxton home. Would you continue to help him develop in home, at the home and be with uh, Lily and Nick and their family as they care for one another and uh, continue to try and re- retain some level of normalcy. Be with that child, and may you bless him greatly. And thank you for all the children of our church. May they, one by one, come to know you from a very early age for the rest of their lives. Build your church now as your word is preached in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have three points. Three points. Number one, God's messenger reflects God's beauty. God's messenger reflects God's beauty. Today is March 17th. Three days will mark the anniversary. March 20th, 2003 was the beginning of what what we now know as Operation Iraqi Freedom. That military campaign was kicked off by an incredible display of military aerial superiority in its opening hours of what we would now know as the shock and awe campaign, whereby many, many pounds and tons of ordnance were dropped all across various military targets in Baghdad in a very short period of time intended to dismantle the current leadership and their ability to respond, to strike fear into the hearts of any others who would seek to uh, go against or fight against American military power, and in hopes speed the surrender of the army and advance the purposes of the military. It was a campaign truly of shock and awe. And those who saw the pictures and the the city ablaze and the smoke coming up, it was truly an awe-struck scene. The first thing we see is essentially how this passage begins. All the details, a mighty angel wrapped in a cloud, a rainbow surrounding him. His voice like the roaring of a lion, standing with one foot on the earth and another foot on the land. This is an impressive display of power. Seeing just one angel, don't even call him a mighty angel, just one angel would blow your mind. It would cause you tremendous fear. But this isn't no 
regular angel. This is a mighty angel. Wow, what must he be? This is a display of power and of authority that is intended to strike the mind and impress the reader with a very clear message. Now, this angel is given a very interesting description. Some would say because of his very vivid uh, details and great parallels to other things we see in the scriptures, some would see this as the Lord Jesus himself. And it's understandable how. Read verse 1. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. Who was the last person we saw that had a scroll in their hand? The lamb. He had a scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. Some think this is the Lord Jesus, understandably. We see wrapped in a cloud, parallels Daniel 7, 13, the Son of Man. Uh, Daniel saw the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He had a rainbow around his head. The Greek word here is iris. We know an iris, don't we? Uh, the Greek word is iris, and that would come to be referred to as what we see in a rainbow. The last place we saw a rainbow was in Revelation 4, around the throne of God. We also see a rainbow. Ezekiel, the prophet, sees a rainbow in God's throne room as well, in Ezekiel 1, verse 28. It's also important to note the presence of a rainbow is no random occurrence. It always reminds the reader, the first place we saw the rainbow in the Bible is where? Noah, and after the flood. It was a reminder to Noah that even amidst judgment, God is merciful. The same is true here. Even amidst judgment, God is merciful. This is a very, very important theme for the message of Revelation to the church. And if you think about what we just saw, with the six trumpets and just judgment after judgment after judgment, a third of the earth, a third of the earth, a third of the earth, that even amidst judgment, now he sees an angel with a rainbow communicating God will be merciful even amidst judgment. This is huge to understand what's going to happen in the, in the rest of the book. We see this angel, his face was like the sun, Revelation 1, 16, if you recall. The vision of Jesus, it says his face is like the sun, shines like the sun. His legs are like pillars of fire. Again, Revelation 1.15, this is much like Jesus. He cries out like a roaring lion. And again, in Revelation 1.15, it says Jesus has the voice like the roar of many waters. This is, again, no small description. Many think this is the Lord Jesus. I'm going to suggest it's not. not the Lord Jesus. I don't think that's who's being depicted here for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which being that nowhere in all of the New Testament is Jesus ever referred to as an angel. Ever. He's never referred to as an angel. In fact, the New Testament goes to great pains to differentiate that Jesus is not an angel, that he is very God, the I am. We also see the angel in 
Revelation 10 and verse 6, he swears by him who lives forever and ever and who created all things. Jesus wouldn't make an oath in this manner. Jesus wouldn't need to swear by the God who lives forever and ever. He would just swear by himself. And then the, another reason I could give more, but another one from the text is that word that he begins with, then I saw another mighty angel. That word another, Greek, the Greek language has two words to say another. Uh, one of those words is what we find here. Uh, the other would be, you'll recognize the, the root in our language, heteros or heteros, different versus homo, same. Heteros is what you would use to say, I want another of a different kind. Different kind. So if they were going to say Jesus and use this word as an angel, it would be that one, another of a different kind. But the word here used as another is another of the same kind. The same kind. So this is another angel, just like he saw with the seven trumpets of the same kind. And so for all of these reasons, nowhere is Jesus referred to as an angel in the New Testament. He wouldn't swear by him who lives forever and ever and who created all things because he is the one who created all things. And the usage of the word, I would say, this is actually a mighty angel. Perhaps another order of angel, a high order of angel. Uh, it could be Michael. It could be Gabriel. We don't know, but we know it's not Jesus. It is a mighty angel. If that's the case, what do we make of this description, and what is its purpose? As I said, the purpose is to instill shock and awe into John and the readers. It's meant to convey the power and the glory of God, and it sets the stage for the message to come. But for now, by application, we could say this, God's representatives reflect his beauty. God's representatives reflect his beauty. There's a principle that the closer you are to God, the more you should be like him. It's very simple. This is a high order of angel who spends probably a great deal of time around the throne and as a result, when he comes to deliver a message at behest of the Lord Jesus, he reflects many of the attributes of the Lord Jesus. And so it is that the closer we are to God, the more we should be like him. When I was younger, I was just talking to some, some people about this, I disdained the, the youth camp high. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The youth camp high kids, they, they go away, they go off to youth camp. And they're there for a week, and then they come back, and, and you're on fire, supercharged for God, and you're like, yeah. And then a week later, gone, back to normal. I disdained that when I was younger. I disdained it in myself, and I disdained it in others. Uh, I, I also know adults did too. You'd kind of, you know, kids would come back all on fire for Jesus, and you kind of cross your hand like, how long is it going to last this time? Right? It's kind of discouraging. It's kind of discouraging. I want to encourage you, it's not an inherently bad thing. It's not an inherently a bad thing. It also doesn't mean it's fake just because it fades. 
doesn't necessarily mean it's unreal because it doesn't last. So what do we make of it then? I'd urge you to consider this. Whenever that happens, what we might call youth camp high or any other type of, you go on a retreat and you come back and you're like, yes, I want to live for the Lord. And you go to a conference, I'm going to live for the Lord. And you come back and, and then it maybe wanes a little bit. How do you understand that? Was it fake? What, what was going on there? Consider this. What you're experiencing and what is experienced by young people is a result of spending concentrated and extended time with the Lord. Because the closer you are to God, the more you are like Him. And what you experience is that side effect, the ripple effect of extended and concentrated time with God. Think about this. Moses went up to Mount Sinai. When he came down, what was his face doing? Shining. It was radiating. And he had to put a veil on because it freaked people out. They didn't want to see him because his face was so bright. But we find out later that his, the glory of his face was actually fading, wasn't it? Hebrews tells us that his face was fading as time went on. Even the face of Moses faded when he came down from the mountain. And it's a simple principle. When we spend extended amounts of time with God, it changes us. It changes us. We become different. I've been able to pastor some of you for six years about now, some of you from the very beginning, and, and I can say this for some of you, I have literally been able to see this change in you. As you have spent more time with God, as you have spent more time in His Word, as you have leaned into the people of God instead of away from the people of God when conflict comes, you have pressed through that hard season and you are spending more time with Jesus daily, you have grown, literally, and you look more like Jesus than you did six years ago. Is it because of me? No. It's a simple principle. When you spend time with God, you reflect Him. You reflect His likeness and His image. Now, that doesn't mean that your life has gotten any easier. In fact, for some of you, it's gotten harder. doesn't mean that life is rosy, but what it means is in your responses in the midst of trial, undoubtedly, you represent Christ in greater and greater degree. Praise God. And one day, one day, we will all behold his face and be changed like him in an instant forever and ever and ever Praise God. God's messengers reflect his beauty and his majesty. And everywhere that you find where somebody does not reflect the beauty of God, either in word or conduct, you can be assured there's a defect in how they're spending time with him. There's a defect somewhere. Because God changes his people through the gospel. This angel then proceeds to do something very unusual. He plants his feet, one his right foot, one of them on the land, the other on the sea. That's unusual. What is being displayed here? This is a clear, blatant display of power and dominion, of power and and dominion. That's what's being shown here. This messenger is claiming authority over all the earth. 
If some of you, if you were to look, you could Google this later if you want, but maybe you've seen the old artwork of, of David and Goliath, some of the older artwork, especially the, uh, I don't know who did it, the uh, cathedral in Italy, Milan, Italy. There is a, this artwork, famous sculpture uh, of David, and, but most of the artworks, no matter who, you, who does it, it shows Goliath's corpse on the ground after David has defeated him, and it shows his foot on the chest of Goliath. Why? That's showing power and victory. And you see this often in various movies or displays where, where one fighter goes, the other one goes down, and, and they put their foot on their chest. And David's holding up the head of Goliath. It's a, it's a display of power. And that's what this angel is showing. It is showing the power and authority of God over all the earth. And this is exactly what Jesus said in the Great Commission, didn't he? Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So, God's messenger plants his feet on the land and the sea, showing his power. And this is really important at this stage of Revelation, because we have just seen the trumpets, especially the first four, and the seals, causing massive natural upheaval. We saw them affecting the waters, the earth, the, the fresh water. And so it's very important that the church at this time sees that over all the chaos, over all the pain, over all the suffering, and what we're going to see in chapter 12 is out of the sea is going to come a terrifying beast. And what God is telling his readers now at this stage is, I'm in control of all of it. Every last bit of it I'm in control of. And this is intended to comfort the church because what they're about to hear and what they're experiencing in many real ways at that moment is great suffering. And they need to know that over all suffering, our God reigns. You need to know today that over all suffering, our God reigns. And you need to hear it again and again and again, because we forget it in the midst of suffering. We see in his hand he has a little scroll. Now, is it little because it's, it's actually little, or is it little because he's so big? We don't know. But what we do know is this scroll is now opened. First time we saw that scroll, it was what? Sealed with seven seals. And now it's Opened, And we saw that the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, the hand of the one who sits on the throne, has, represents God's complete plan for judgment and redemption. And now it's opened, ready to be executed. So that brings us to point number two. So number one, God's messengers reflect God's beauty. Number two, God's message includes mystery, verses 2 through 7. God's message includes mystery. Something else strange happens is this angel with both his feet planted on the land and the sea then calls out like a roaring lion. This would be a terrifying scene to see. He calls out like a roaring lion, and then it says, and he's answered with thunders. It says, seven thunders sounded in reply. The little word there under sounded is spoke. Seven thunders replied back to him. 
John then scrambles as he hears what's being said. Oh, oh, seven thunders are now. Oh, and, and he's like going to write. And then he hears another voice saying, John, don't write it down. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now the question you're going to ask is, what did they say? I don't know, because he didn't write it down. I don't know. But what I can tell you is, we can have a guess as to what these things mean. I don't know what they said, but what is this play, interplay of the seven thunders? We can take a very loosely educated guess on what the meaning of all this is. Again, do we look to the newspaper headlines for what these things mean? No. Where do we look? the Old Testament. We go back to the Old Testament. And if we do, we find in the Old Testament the ideas of thunders and trumpet blasts come together in a number of places in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 29 would be an example of one where we see them. And again, you see that mentioned uh, a cycle of seven in Psalm 29. But most notably for our purposes here would be in Exodus 19:19. And you remember, God redeems Israel from slavery They go wander through the wilderness for a little bit, and he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And he's giving them the Ten Commandments. This is the formal introduction of Israel to their redeeming God. The first time they are truly meeting him, and it is a terrifying scene at Mount Sinai. We find that the the mountain went up the smoke, like smoke from a kiln, and there was earthquakes and thunders and lightnings, and they were being introduced to Yahweh, their Redeemer. And in that passage, we find Exodus 19, 19, and it says this, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Now here, we have a heavenly messenger speaking, the angel And the answer is from what? Seven thunders. And he's about to talk about the seventh trumpet in a minute. Now, this is an unknown cycle of seven. What's it mean? We know seven has been God's number for completion or fullness. Thunders are often associated with the power of God and judgment. So now we have a complete cycle of perhaps judgment or display of God's power. And John's not permitted to write it down. Why? There's various proposals to this from scholars. They're kind of all across the board. The two that seem most in line with what's going on here, the first one would be that John's not permitted to write it down because it's not going to happen. So you've seen the seven seals. You've seen the seven trumpets, and at the sounding of each of those, things are happening. And then he hears seven thunders, and he doesn't write that down because it's not going to be happening. They're not going to thunder forth. You say, how how do they get that? Remember the seven seals. How many of the earth was affected? One-fourth, a quarter. One-fourth of the earth was affected. Then you went to the seven trumpets, and how much of the earth was affected? One-third. Now, some of you in math have the complete, the what is the next number in the sequence? 
what would you expect the next, the seven bowls to be perhaps? One half, that's right. You would expect it to be one half and then maybe three-fourths and then maybe the whole earth. The idea here, you remember the end of chapter 9, what did it say? With the judgments being unleashed, it summarizes the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You remember at the end of that, it's showing us, in spite of God's pre-judgments, they still did not repent, did they? Not after the seals, not after the trumpets. And so many would say that John's seeing here, what, in effect, what God is saying is, the judgments did not yield repentance. So no more measured repentance. We are going to skip straight to full-scale, worldwide judgment of God. And that's exactly what you see with the bowls, the seven bowls. They skip from, there is no half or quarter, it's straight worldwide cataclysm, chaos. That's one take. The other take is to say that the seven thunders will happen, it's the other way, but we don't know what they are. And this is intended to show us that there is mystery and things and factors that we can't understand, and so we should be very cautious against making predictions and proclamations and holding very firm thoughts and beliefs about the future because there are, there are factors at play that we just don't know that God has chosen not to reveal to us. Those are kind of the two better ones out of all those that would seem to reflect what is happening here. At the very least, part of the meaning either way is to humble us. It's to humble us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever and ever, that we may do the words of this law. This is an important point for us. The secret things belong to the Lord. The scriptures tell us a lot, beloved. They tell us a lot but they don't tell us everything we want to know, do they? They don't tell us all the details, the precision that we would like. Sometimes we want to know more than what God permits. Sometimes we want to know now what God will only reveal later. That's why they say 2020 is, our hindsight's always what? 2020, right? I want to know right now what you're doing, Lord, in my life. It may be that God will not reveal that till later, if at all. Particularly in times of suffering or distress, we want to know, God, what are you doing? Why? How could you? What is the purpose of this? We want specifics and we often don't get them. But we do know generalities. We do know some generalities. We know that in all circumstances, all things for God's people, to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, work out for the good of God's people, for the glory of His name, and ultimately, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Beyond that, many of the details are a mystery. 
They're just a mystery. However, you can lay those truths over your situation like a compass that will never fail you. You can ask, no matter what your suffering is, no matter what your ailment, no matter what your difficulty or conflict or, or whatever is coming on in your life, you can lay that truth over top of it and it will steer you true every time. God's aim is that I respond and be like Jesus in this situation. What does that look like? That'll never fail you. God's aim in this situation is my conformity to Christ. That'll lead you exactly where he wants you to be. Now you're like, but how do I know? That doesn't really help me because some situations are muddy and, and it's not so clear. How does that help me? For that, you have to go to his word. And his word is a treasure trove of knowledge and wisdom. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness through his word. God's word includes mystery. The angel says, when the seventh trumpet sounds, there will be no more delay, or literally time. The Greek word is time. The idea here is that there is a fixed day when God will bring all things to an end. We don't know when that day is, but it is coming. And when it comes, there's nothing you can do to stop it. There's nothing you can do to change it. Slow it down. It will come. God's purposes will come to pass. Now, here's the kicker. Some of us might live to see that day. For others, our time will run out before that day comes, and you don't know when that time will be. It's always good and worth asking, if you knew you were going to see Jesus this evening, how would you live life differently today, now, this afternoon? If you knew tomorrow... You were going to stand before God's judgment. What unresolved business would you take up? What grudges would you resolve? What bitterness would you let go of? What debts would you clean up? Who would you tell about Jesus? It's always good to live in light of the end. One of the sorry sad realities of our ignoring, uh, ignoring the book of Revelation because of fear and maybe because of some of these things is that we don't live light, life in light of the second coming of Christ, do we? We don't think as if he could come today. He could come tomorrow. And therefore, we live as if he is not coming ever because we don't talk about it. That is a grave mistake. The apostles, this was their great hope, the second coming of Christ. They longed for it. They prayed for it. They, they poured out their lives hoping that they would see that day. And we should do the same. Amen. Number three, God's message is beautiful and bitter. God's message is beautiful and bitter. So God's message has mystery and God's message is beautiful and bitter. In verses 8 through 11, we see John is now with an open seal. He is going to be recommissioned to give the meaning of the scroll that is now open, now unsealed. He's going to be recommissioned to prophesy to the church, and that's going to be unfolded in, from chapters 11 and the rest of the book onward. Now, this is unmistakably fashioned after Ezekiel's prophetic commissioning. 
Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 through 3, verse 3. I'm going to read that. Ezekiel 2, 9 to 3, 3. This is what it says. And when I looked, behold. Now remember what we just read in Revelation, all right? When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And remember, we have a double-sided scroll here. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. We just saw what? The second woe passed, didn't we, in Revelation? And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Undoubtedly, this is fashioned off of Ezekiel's prophetic commissioning. In like manner, John is told to approach this massive, powerful, incredibly brilliant angel and take a scroll out of his hand. How many of you would like to have that? Okay, you see this incredibly terrifying creature? Now I want you to go take that thing from his hand. We have a dog. Uh, her name is Nala. She's a pit bull. Uh, she's pretty big. She's not huge, but to a small child, uh, she's a, she might as well be a monster. And uh, so some of, some of the church people, you guys know who you are, that you come over and you bring your young children. And it's kind of fun if you see a child who's not been around a large dog, uh, they kind of look at her like, she's going she's gonna to eat me, you know? And, and so I got to watch one, one little young child kind of creep over to her as she's laying down. And she just kind of like, like ran away, <laughs> and the dog didn't even move. She's terrified of this creature. And I would imagine that's exactly how John would have approached this angel to take the scroll out of his hand, like, can I have the, that thing, please? <laughs> right? He's told to do this, and so he goes and he does it. And we read what happens in Revelation 9, verse 9 through 11 of chapter 10. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. God's word is sweet. His word in your mouth is like honey. Some of you will go out to lunch today, and you're going to eat some food, and you're going to be like, oh, that was so good. Oh, no. You have your Kanak attack. But then sometimes you eat a good meal, and later on your stomach is sour, isn't it? It's sour. It's bitter, and you kind of taste it all day, and you're like, why did I do that to myself? This is what John experiences. He eats this scroll, Again, this is figurative. He's not, you shouldn't, you know, he's not eating a burrito scroll, right? It's figurative. He takes in God's word, which, is cons which has much judgment in it. It's had judgment already, hasn't it? He takes in God's word, and it is sweet. The Bible, beloved, is sweet. Psalm 19.10 says this of God's words, More to be desired are they than gold, 
even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Or Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. When my children take honey, we make them peanut butter jelly sandwiches and give them honey, I tell them, son or daughter, God's word is sweeter than that honey. It's more valuable than gold. Have you ever spoken to somebody and after you leave, you're just refreshed and encouraged? You're just like, man, that was just, I needed that. That's the way God's word is. It is sweet. Now I want you to imagine something. Imagine making an appointment with me. You come in to see me and maybe there's something heavy on your heart. You have something going on that, that you're hoping to get help or encouragement or counsel from. And, and you sit down with me and, and you start to tell me your story. Pastor, I had the hardest week. This is what's happening. And then like five minutes into it, I just get up and I walk out. Have a good day. Right? And you're like, okay, okay. that wasn't helpful. Or imagine you take time and you tell me your whole story and I listen. And then I begin to talk back to you. About three minutes pass before I'm even done talking, and you, you get up and you leave. Thanks, Pastor. And you might leave and be like, well, that wasn't a very helpful meeting at all. I didn't, Pastor didn't even tell me anything helpful. I might suggest this is how much of our time with God's Word is spent, isn't it? In the morning, we take a very rushed three to five minutes, and just when he's beginning to talk, we... I gotta go. And then we wonder, why am I so distant and cold about the things of the Lord? Why do I feel so dry spiritually? Beloved, view your daily time with God as an appointment with Him and as an opportunity to really hear His word and His wisdom to you. Truly, His word is sweet in our mouths. That's why we do fighter verses and things of that nature. You know, the beautiful thing about memorizing scripture is even if you're working and you're jamming and you're doing stuff, you can still be eating on it. It's still there. Serve the Lord with gladness. Make a joyful noise to all the earth. Right? You can still meditate on it. Even when you're in the middle of doing something, even if you don't have a book open before you, you can be communing with God. That's the beautiful thing about scripture memory. Nobody can take it away. You don't need a headphone in your ear. You don't need anything. You can be meditating anywhere, anytime. Beloved, treasure your time with God. It is sweet. Additionally, we also see his word is bitter. It does have judgment and lamentation and woe in it. This tells us by application there are things in God's word that are a hard pill to swallow. Have you ever encountered a truth of God's word that was just, just you initially just kind of kick against it? It's not because it's not true. It's not because it's not good. It's not because it's not beautiful. It's all of those things. There's nothing defective in it. The defect is in us. That's what makes it bitter often is it's my perspective that's off. It's my understanding that isn't full. And as a result, it can sit sour on us. 
if we're honest, we are often more worldly in our thinking than we'd like to admit. There are some truths, I try to be very patient with people because I know there are some truths that the moment you hear them, you will kick against them. And that's understandable. In a sense, we all have some measure of that in our lives where we are kicking against the Word of God. It's because passages like this that I know we need to be patient with one another. God's Word can be bitter. When you hear words on marriage, Marriage is between one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. Depending on what I'm saved out of, that can be a very bitter pill for me to swallow or to live in accordance with. Perhaps if you're having a bad marriage, a difficult season of marriage, a prolonged season of difficulty and hardship. Or when you hear the command, obey your masters in the Lord, for this is pleasing to God, and you have a wicked master. That's not what I want to hear. Or when you hear the command to pay your taxes, and you disdain the government's use of them. That's a hard pill to swallow. Or when you hear abortion, and you decide or you desire to get rid of the life in your room and you hear that God hates murder and values all life. When you hear how awful sin is, its devastating effects. When you hear how prideful we are that maybe my problems in life aren't X person's fault. Maybe it's really reflecting of my heart and my pride. That's a hard pill to swallow. It's bitter. And if I don't repent from that, I will face judgment and discipline. That's a bitter pill. I understand that. We should be gracious with one another and patient. We also see how good God is. <coughs> Excuse me. How good God is. And whenever I'm suffering, losing two children, three, a, loved, a beloved family member, Sometimes it can be hard to hear that God is good and sovereign in that. These are bitter and they're sweet. There are parts of God's word when we think of his judgments on unbelievers that should cause us a degree of recourse. We don't get out of God's judgment because we are inherently better, beloved. We deserve the same thing. And we don't experience it. Why? Because Christ suffered in our place. Far from giving us pride, this should humble us. So let me ask you, do you ache over sin and God's wrath being poured out on unbelievers? Does that cause your heart to break? Sometimes I see either on social media or here how Christians speak about the end of unbelievers, and it's so callous, so little compassion. Yeah, abortion, we're going to judge them. Homosexuals are going to be judged. Transgender, sin. Often those who respond in anger at unrepentant sinners generally have a great deal of pride and are blind to their own moral shortcomings and belittle the grace they have received. In most cases, this fails to reflect the heart of God. Say, how do you know that, Pastor? 
Hear the heart of God, Ezekiel 33:11. Remember, so much of Revelation is coming from pattern off of Ezekiel's judgments. Hear this. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's the heart of God. Lamentations 3, you have Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, also very large in the backdrop of Revelation. Lamentations 3, 31-33, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict, get this, from his heart. The Lord does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. That's the heart of God. It's not from his heart. He's not having pleasure in the death of the wicked or Proverbs 24, 17 to 18. We're told, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. This is not the heart of God that takes pleasure and the death of the wicked. His desire is that the wicked would turn and live. I am the first one. I will gladly affirm the sovereignty of God over all things, but we must be balanced by the truths of Scripture that God simultaneously pines, he, he longs, He calls for sinners to repent. He longs to give life. God loves to be glorified and forgiving and showing mercy and grace to sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. We have to affirm those things. So yes, when we see grave sin, anger is an appropriate response of the heart, but it must be tempered and accompanied by great compassion for the lost and prayers that they would turn from their ways and turn to Christ just as He was merciful to us. Woe to those who rejoice when their enemies stumble and fall because we too were once enemies of God and in His great love and mercy, He didn't condemn us, but He came to us. He forgave us. He redeemed us at great cost to himself. And now this second serves us every day to ensure that we all make it home to glory. This is an incredible God. So today, I beg of you, please turn. If that's you, please turn to God or turn back to God. Weep over unbelief in your life and in your family. Forgive great sin against yourself and proclaim the awesome, powerful, beautiful message of Christ. I wrote a brief poem to close. It's, it's John Bunyan-esque, Pilgrim's Progress. It says this, A day will come when time will end so let us on God's word depend, trusting in him until that day and hour, relying always on his might and power. Let us do that today. Let's pray.